The text for the sermon this afternoon is the Word of God, as the church has summarized it in Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 9 has as heading God the Father in our creation, and here the church confesses, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by His eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. In Him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity He sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father. So far, our confession Following the proclamation of God's Word, we will sing together as our initial response, Psalm 4, the stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin dealing with the articles of the Apostles' Creed, We focus first on God the Father, the one who made heaven and earth. This is the confession of the church, and actually, it's the confession of each individual believer. We confess that He's my God and my Father. It's something personal. And what's more, it's clear from Lord's Day 9 that this confession about our Father and His work of creation is meant to be a deep and a comforting confession. And there's a good reason for that as well. The authors of the Catechism don't hide from the fact that such comfort is needed due to the reality that this life is a life of sorrows. Earlier we read from Psalm 90, a passage in which Moses himself is incredibly realistic, and he deals with many of the difficult questions in life. So then confessing God as our Father, it's something that lands. To put it plainly, this confession of having God as my Father is something that has an impact on us every day that God gives us in this world. And knowing through faith that the Almighty God is our Father It doesn't only impact our actions and what we do each day, it also changes our attitudes. For rather than being filled with anxiety, having that internal storm that continues to rage, the believer is filled with the quiet trust of faith, knowing that they have the greatest source of strength and security that's possible in this world. I proclaim to you the Word of God under the following theme, in this life of sorrows, believers confess their trust in their Father. We'll consider two things, how He is our Father and how He benefits us as our Father. Partway through Lord's Day 9, the believer confesses, in Him, that is in our Father, 
I trust so completely as to have no doubt. Now, these are striking words when you think about them. Trusting someone so completely as to have no doubt, that's not something that comes easily to us. The reality is that trusting someone at that kind of level, at that depth, it means surrendering oneself entirely, giving up complete control to the other party, taking your hands off the wheel, letting everything go. And that's not just doing so with a fatalistic mindset either, thinking, well, what is going to happen is going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it anyways. No, trusting and having no doubt means possessing a certain confidence that as we let go, the other party knows better than we do and they're far more capable than us. Yet by nature, people like to keep some measure of control in their own lives. Yeah, we're willing to trust others, but not entirely. And we are quite picky about who we will trust as well, because there's always a possibility they'll make a mess out of the situation. They'll do something that I don't agree with. Or worse, they'll betray that trust. We worry about being left disappointed, hurt in the end, if we don't keep our finger on things just a little bit and have a small measure of control. But to trust someone so completely as to have no doubt, it also means that there has to be a reason for that confidence to be in place. And that's why the first part of Lord's Day 9 is critical to our confession of God as Father. That whole first part, which does seem to be more theoretical, it has to be clear in our minds because that is what sets the foundation for us. That's what gives the reason for such a deep trust to exist. The reality is that confessing the Almighty God to be our Father is not something that should ever be thought of lightly or taken for granted. So that first part addresses the question of who exactly is our Father and how did He become our Father? Reflecting on what we confess there, we see that the identity of God as Father actually has nothing to do with us. The spotlight is taken off of us and it's placed first of all on the natural Son. Our confession of God as Father begins with the fact that He is first of all the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God always has been a father. He did not become a father when He created Adam and Eve in the beginning. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son within the Trinity, that's not bound by time. That has no beginning, that has no end. And now we know that God is eternal. It's something that Moses acknowledged in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God always has been. God always will be. And part of His eternal being is that He is the Father, first of all, of Christ His Son. God did not change when He created this world by adding that title of Father to Himself. 
And if that were the case, if God at creation had somehow changed and became a father then, it would take away a significant part of who God is and also the assurance we could have in knowing Him as our Father. Because if God could change once in the past, what would stop Him from changing again in the future? So when we think of God as Father, we first need to think of His relationship with His Son in eternity. It's a relationship that's revealed for us in time, namely through what God says about His Son as told to us in the Scriptures. You can think about the voice from heaven heard following the baptism of the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. It's not surprising to hear that there was a perfect love that the Father had for His Son. It was not broken by tension in any way. But God was also well pleased with His only begotten Son. He took pleasure with Him. He was delighted in Him. Through those words that He spoke, God the Father confirmed to everyone listening that He placed His seal of approval on Jesus Christ without any reservation. And then it's for the sake of Christ His Son that this God and this Father is now my God and my Father. The work that God the Son has accomplished is the work of redemption. We confess that in Lord's Day 8. And that redemption is necessary because by nature, no one is a child of God since the fall into sin. By nature, each one is a child of Satan, a child of wrath, each one a slave to sin and a slave of the evil one. And here's the striking thing, brothers and sisters, that was man's choice. That was a deliberate decision made by our parents in rebellion against God. It was not always that way, man being caught up in the wrong crowd. God created man in his own image, in his own likeness, that is in true righteousness and holiness. At the beginning, there was that intimate relationship between the creator and the crown of his creation. But man chose to ally himself with the serpent giving in to temptation, deliberately disobeying the Father, man lost his initial place as a child of God. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has come, and by His atoning sacrifice, He restored believers to their initial position. Yes, we have a Father in heaven, but that is only because of the Son, Christ, belonging to God, acknowledging Him as Father. That's something exclusive. It's not because all are part of the brotherhood of mankind. We have a Father because our Savior gave up His life and reconciled us to God. So this relationship we have with the Father comes down to what Christ has done for us, what the Father has done for us, in love. The love with which God loves His eternal natural Son is showered upon His adopted children as well. It's a matter of God reaching out in love and bringing us close to Him. 
And that fact is also what the Lord made clear to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Already when they were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, the Lord spoke to Pharaoh through Moses, and he told Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Well, to that son, God showed his love by setting him free from slavery. When the, Lord, when the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai, then the Lord spoke to them through Moses, and he said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus 19, verse 4. The fact that God referred to Israel as his firstborn son wasn't because Israel reached out to God in the first place. It wasn't because Israel decided, okay, we have to choose a God, we're going to choose you, the Lord. No, God brought them in. God brought them to himself. And as part of that relationship, the father set them free from slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to their promised inheritance, a foreshadow of what God has done for his children in Jesus Christ. Because through Christ, we've been set free from slavery, not in Egypt, but to sin and Satan. Guided by Christ through his word and spirit, we're in the process of being brought to the promised inheritance kept safe for us. And that's wonderful. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. It's not only that inheritance that's kept safe. As children of our Almighty Heavenly Father, we are safe as well. The God who has become our Father for the sake of Christ His Son is the eternal God and Father who doesn't change. His love with which he loves his children is not something that fades away, but it lasts forever. And still today there is refuge to be found in the shadow of his wings. And that's something of which the children of God can be completely confident about, for it's this Father who's the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made all things visible and invisible. The fact that the authors of the Catechism include a brief explanation of this reality is actually a very important part of our confession, and certainly it receives more of our attention in Lord's Day 10, but it does need to be noted now as well. Because if we're going to know God as our Father, it's much more than just knowing about His identity. Father is much more than just a label. It's also about what our Father is able to do, and the power that He holds. If you want to know about the power of your Heavenly Father, look around you, all the things you can see. Think of everything that exists in this world. Think of the creatures, the beauty of creation, the complexities of creation, how everything is intricately set in its place. Think of the numerous stars that cannot be counted. Think of the vastness of this whole universe, which man can barely comprehend. And all of that was created and continues to be upheld by the Almighty God, who is our faithful Father. And that is a source of great comfort. Not just to us, but we see that throughout Scripture. It was often the case that believers would appeal to God as the creator of heaven and earth in difficult situations. You can think of the apostles in Acts chapter 4. After Peter and John were placed in prison for a night, 
And they called on the Lord in prayer. And they started their prayer with these words, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything is in them. So they start with that reassuring confession of God's absolute power over everything that exists. That's something that hasn't changed either. Our Father is the one who created everything we can see and even the things that we can't see. Our Father is still the one who sovereignly directs everything that happens in this world which He brought to existence. There's nothing that happens outside His control. And that's truly incredible to think about. That's awe-inspiring even. But brothers and sisters, those aren't just mere facts. They're realities that have meaning for us every day. Because now it comes to the question, whom do you really trust? Do you still want to maintain some level of control over things for yourself? Do you want to trust yourself to do what's always right? Because what you're saying then is that you trust someone who is nothing more than a rebel by nature. Your trust is in someone who's weak, someone who's limited. Or is your trust in the one who made heaven and earth and everything in them and who still upholds and governs it all? Do you trust the one who loved you so much that he sent his only natural eternal son who, so that he might redeem you and allow for you to be an adopted child by grace? That's what it all comes down to. It's the self with all its weaknesses and limitations and shortcomings. Or it's the almighty God who has become our father for the sake of Christ his son. Knowing who our Father really is, what He's done for us, and what He's still capable of doing for us, that gives every reason to trust Him alone. It removes any reason for having the slightest bit of doubt. It gives every reason for us to let go of all the troubles and the trials that we face. Our Father has revealed Himself in all His power and glory so that we may entrust ourselves to his loving care, and that we can do so having the complete assurance, Father knows best, Father's love is eternal, and Father knows how to take care of his own. For the fact that he is our Father benefits us greatly, as we see now in our second point. The fact that our Heavenly Father is sovereign over all things, it gives us a feeling of safety and security. It's exactly what Moses spoke about at the beginning of Psalm 90. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. In other words, throughout all their journeys, all the trials that they faced, Israel was always safe with God. He was the one who gave protection in all situations, who provided shelter from the storms. And sure, that's easy enough to say when things are well. But considering the rest of the psalm, we see what a deep and meaningful confession it really is. 
Because moving on from those opening verses, Moses indicates that things were not always necessarily so good and well for Israel either. They'd been confronted with the frailty of life as an entire generation of people died in the wilderness. That wasn't just a random thing that just happened. It was something in which God Himself was active. Moses says in verse 3, You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. But it gets worse because in addition, God was acquainted with the many sins of His people. All their rebellion, all their grumbling, all their complaining, even that which was done in their hearts throughout that whole wilderness journey, all laid bare in his sight. We read that in verse 8. And while the life of man is brief, 70 years, or 80 by reason of strength, it's characterized by one thing, and that's difficulty. As Moses records in verse 10, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone, and we fly away. It's this verse that forces us to stop and reflect for a moment. Toil and trouble. The word that he uses for trouble here can refer to impending disaster, injustice, nothingness. That's the lot of man in this world for as many years as God gives. In these words from Moses, you hear the voice of one who has seen and experienced much and who knows how bitter life can really be. That's what our confession picks up on in answer 26. There we confess that this life is a life of sorrows, a veil of tears, or to use language from the form for baptism, it's nothing more than a constant death. Perhaps at first that seems a little too pessimistic and not balanced enough. After all, are things really that bad? Aren't there so many reasons for joy and thankfulness? Well, that depends, brothers and sisters, on what exactly we understand by sorrows. It depends on how we want to view our lives and whether we simply do so from the human lens or from the divine perspective. Because yes, for ourselves, we can find many reasons for joy. Things don't seem to be all that bad most of the time. There are many reasons for thankfulness. There are many good things God gives us, so many reasons for celebration. But we have to dig a little bit deeper. And we will see that our life is indeed filled with sorrows. And it starts by asking that question, what exactly did God create us for? Well, the answer is found in Isaiah 43, verse 7. The Lord Himself says that He created everyone for His glory. That was our purpose, to glorify God in all that we did. But because we've fallen into sin, it's not something that we can do any longer. Even our best works in this life are as filthy rags. So that has to be our starting point. Namely, the fact that we cannot carry out the purpose for which we were created. And the more we come to realize that fact, the more we see the depths to which we've actually fallen, it causes us to grieve because of our sins. And yes, we know that in Christ we do have the forgiveness of sins. 
We know that by his sacrifice on the cross, he made the full and complete payment in our place. We know that because of his work, we're children of God who have been reconciled and redeemed. We know the sweet sounds of the gospel. But that doesn't mean we think of sin lightly, shrugging it off, acting like it's no big deal. It doesn't mean that our sins don't bother us. Rather, knowing the grace of our Savior and what He suffered in our place, that makes us hate sin all the more. Knowing the amazing love that our Father has showered upon us, it makes us detest ourselves and humble ourselves when we see our lack of thankfulness and our constant shortcomings. A life of sorrow is not defined as such in the first place because we base it on our own experiences. No, it's a life of sorrows because it's not the life that God created it to be. But it's trusting in our Father that makes all the difference. Our Father reminds us through His Word that while we are indeed sinners, we are forgiven sinners through Christ. All our guilt is really and truly washed away. But then in addition to that reality of our sin, there are also the many consequences of sin that we face as well. We live in a broken, fallen world, one that's filled with pain, sickness, anxiety, worry, death. There's brokenness in relationships, troubles within families, things that are so bad that they won't get fixed on this side of eternity. There's the loss of loved ones, the grief that never seems to go away. There's the pain of seeing those close to us leave the church and abandon the faith. We can go on for a long time listing the different things that we have to face. The weight of these things is something that each one experiences in their own lives in different ways. Each one here in the congregation can think of it for themselves and reflect on what it means for them that their life is a life of sorrows beyond the fact that they're sinful. The more you think about it for yourself, the more you realize how true it is that our lives are not perfect and they're not ideal in any way. The weight of that reality, it's enough to bring us to our knees which is when we're in the perfect position. We realize that of ourselves, we're helpless. Trusting in ourselves cannot give any lasting solution or peace. But trusting in our Heavenly Father gives the perfect solution, gives all the direction that we need. Brothers and sisters, Lord's Day 9 does not just confront us with the reality of this life characterized by sorrows and leave us hanging without hope. It teaches us where to turn at all times. In this life of sorrows, we have a Father who provides us with all things necessary for body and soul, and who turns to our good whatever adversity He sends. And at that point, we have to stop. Again, there's something to consider. Whatever adversity He sends me in this life of sorrows? That can catch us off guard. Our Father is the one who sends us adversity? That doesn't sound like a very caring, loving Father. And yet that is the reality. 
It's also what Moses knew as we read in Psalm 90, verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. How do we work with that? Only by remembering the first part of Lord's Day 9 can this make any sense at all. The one who sends the adversity is the one who created all things, who upholds all things, who governs all things. And as we'll deal with more in Lord's Day 10, nothing happens by chance. It's all in His fatherly hand. Certainly no one likes adversity and no one looks forward to trials. No one says, yeah, I can handle it, bring it on. But knowing that it's all in Father's hand, that Father knows what's best for us, that drives us to quietly trust in Him, to surrender ourselves to His care completely, also in the trials. For what Father has promised is that every adversity He sends in this life of sorrows will ultimately be for our good. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 28. And it may be difficult to believe and even more impossible to understand, but that is God's promise to us. It's the promise we hear each time in baptism. And it's good to hear that promise once again and to think about it because then we see how closely it ties to everything we confess here in Lord's Day 9. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that He adopts us as His children and heirs. He promises to provide us with all good and to avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. God the Father promises us he adopts us as His children. He can make that promise because it's all about what He does for us in Christ. God the Father promises He's going to provide everything necessary and whatever evil we face will turn out for our benefit. He can make that promise because He is sovereignly in control of the whole created order. It means that at times our Father disciplines us in love for our good, dealing with us as real, actual children, which we read in Hebrews 12. Our Father gives us trials to test us and refine us, which we read in Psalm 66. And somehow in the end, we always come out having gained and having benefited in some way. No, it's not something we can always explain. There are many situations in which we don't know how our Father is doing things for our benefits. And especially when we're in the moment itself, it can be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to make any sense of it. But in the end, we may know and believe this with certainty. Any adversity God the Father allows, it's never about pushing us away from Him. It's all about our loving and gracious Father drawing us closer to Himself, teaching us once again to let go, to trust in Him even more. And that's a lesson we need to keep on learning. For as we go through this life of sorrows, we have two choices. Either we go forward in our own strength or we trust in our Father. Brothers and sisters, what's your choice? Adversity is sure to come. There's no such thing as a life that is untouched by sin and its consequences. 
So do you want to trust yourself, a fallen creature? Or do you trust the Creator who has become your Father for the sake of Christ your Savior, who loved you and who gave Himself for you? Your Father is the one who is both willing and able to provide you with all things needed for body and soul. Your Father is both willing and able to turn to your good whatever adversity He sends in this life of sorrows. As Lord's Day 9 closes, He is able as Almighty God and willing also as faithful Father. There is no doubt that God is able to do these things. He is Almighty. He is the Creator of heaven and earth. He still upholds and governs them as with His hand. There is no denying His power. But this isn't only about what he's able to do. It's even more about what he's willing to do. As our faithful father, he's willing to provide us with all things for body and soul. Not reluctantly. He delights in doing so. As our faithful father, he's willing to turn all adversity to our benefit. Not something he does with hesitation but his promise that he's going to do so. And that's what Moses expresses in Psalm 90 as well. Having given a stirring and powerful description of the life of sorrows and troubles, he closes the psalm with a prayer to the one who's the eternal dwelling place for his people. Beginning in verse 14, he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. In this life of sorrows, it is God our Father who satisfies us. And He doesn't satisfy us by simply taking away all the trouble and affliction and giving us a smooth ride. No, He satisfies us with His steadfast love. It's the fact that He's faithful to His covenant that He established with us. That's what gives us confidence at all times. He is the one who took the initiative to reach out to us, to adopt us as His children. He personally says, I'm going to take responsibility for you. Not just for a short time, not just here and there, throughout all your life. And brothers and sisters, that is truly amazing and humbling. The one who created heaven and earth Everything in them promises you, I'll take care of you. And it's that fact that allows us to trust completely and to not doubt. We can go forward with the confidence and joy that we sang of in Psalm 121 at the beginning of the service. With God our Father having reached out in love and claimed us as His own in His good pleasure, it makes all the difference. It gives us every reason to place in Him our sole reliance. And as we continue through this life of sorrows, in faith we can continue to sing the words of Psalm 4 set to rhyme. More joy and gladness you have sent me than all the joy of those who feast on grain and wine in days of plenty. Lord, in the safety that you grant me, I sleep in peace from cares released. Amen.